Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, this week we have a double portion. We, our portion is Tazria and Metzora. It may be your favorite part of the entire Bible. I'm not sure if you like reading about the laws of Tzarat and uh, separation and all kinds of things like that. I, I, I doubt many people have this as their, their favorite portion of the year. But even still, in this confusing, at times, hard to understand, double portion, there's a great depth of beauty and uh, really aspects where God is weaving together various themes about the story of restoration and redemption into this. Into this. But we have to kind of dig below this to, to see what's going on. Um, you know, when the priest looks at the, the flesh, he looks to see if it's more than skin deep. You know, and it's like, well, you got to go deeper. <laughs> but, but, you know, one of the things that, the main theme that I felt like this week is the idea of rebirth and life from the dead. And one thing that was standing out to me is a phrase where there, there's a prayer where it said about God, He is the King who brings death and gives life and makes salvation grow. He brings death that gives life and makes salvation grow. So the death comes first, and then the life follows. And it's from, it's from the Amida, or some may say the Amidah prayer. It's a section called Divine Might, which says, You are eternally mighty, Lord. You give life to the dead and have great power to save. He sustains the living with loving kindness and with great compassion revives the dead. He supports the fallen, heals the sick, sets captives free, and keeps his faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, master of might, and to whom can you be compared, O king, who brings death and gives life and makes salvation grow? Faithful are you to revive the dead. Blessed are you, Lord, who revives the dead. It's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful prayer. Um, so much of the Amida is really calling and praying for God to bring the, the Messiah and the Messianic era, to bring the restoration. And this part is early on in, in the prayer, and it's just something wonderful to think on, about even in the midst of death or despair, there is yet hope on the horizon because God is mighty to save. And when we come into this portion, a lot of the discussion is about this affliction called Sara'at. And it's often translated as leprosy, but that's really a, a misnomer. It's not an accurate translation of, of, what the, of what the word is telling us about, because leprosy today is entirely different than what Sara'at was in biblical times. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, actually, we'll get into that here very shortly. But it's the person who has come down with this affliction is cut off from the rest of the camp. They are ostracized from society, um, and they are. It's almost like they're a dead person walking. Okay, because of the spiritual. Well, it's actually the the. The ritual contamination that they carry is likened unto that of a corpse and its ability to defile and contaminate. So they're really seen as like, like a dead person. And so let's look in Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. This is the part that is dealing with um, a person who has been declared to have the disease. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Okay, so the person is removed 
from the camp. And normally when we think about this, it all seems to make sense because we think about a medical condition, you have a disease that's communicable, you should quarantine or you should be, not be walking around in public in great gatherings because chances are it's, well, I mean, if it's contagious, it's going to spread to other people and you don't want that to happen. So reading this, we might think, oh, well, that's what this is really all about. But then when you come to look a little bit deeper, you find that this is not a disease like we think of, not one that's communicable as uh, a germ spreading from one person to another, but it's actually the, communic the communicability of it, the ability of it to be com communicated to others is actually through a spiritual connection as opposed to a physical connection. And the sages, well, let's, let's not get there just yet. And I'm going to explain why it's not viewed to be a, a disease that is, you know, like a virus, okay? There's a few things that happen here. Let's look in Leviticus 13, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair on the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. All right, so one thing that should stand out here that's odd is if you have an illness, this illness, you don't go to a doctor, you go to the priest. The priest is not a doctor, okay? But the priest is the one who has to be, is the one who declares that somebody has this affliction. No one else has authority to declare that someone has this affliction, and once the priest says this person has the affliction, then they have to go outside the camp. But if the priest does not pronounce it, or if he waits, then they keep mingling with everybody until the time that he says so. If a doctor were to look at it and say, oh, that's, that's leprosy or that's tzara'at, it wouldn't matter. They could still walk among the community. They could still be there. It has to be the priest who makes the declaration. Even... What's said is that in times of holidays or weddings, if someone came down with this affliction, the priest would not agree to see them until after the holiday or until after the, the week-long wedding celebration. And then after that, he would look, and then he could declare it as being tzara'at, in which case it would be excommunicated. It was a greater thing to allow people to continue the holiday and the festival or the celebration than to have them moved out of the community. But if it's really a virus, that's the worst time to have them among the population. Because at a festival, that's when everybody is gathering into Jerusalem. Not really the time to let people with viruses walk around. But it wasn't, it wasn't for the purpose of a physical virus. It was for the purpose of identifying a spiritual malady that had manifested in the flesh. Okay? And part of the reasoning behind all of this, I mean, I, I kind of told a little bit of it, but if we looked in, I'll, I'll share another paradox, or actually two more paradoxes that, that come into this. One is Leviticus 13, 12. Leviticus 13.12 says, If the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. So if this affliction covers the entire body, the person is deemed to be clean and can begin the process of coming back into the camp. Normally we would say, well, that's when they're at their worst, right? Doesn't it need to heal? And then once it's healed, then, uh, then they can come back in? No, in this case, it covered entirely, now it's clean. And then 
In verse 14, speaking of the one who had been completely covered, it says, when raw flesh appears on him, so this is actually speaking of healed skin appears on him, he shall now be unclean. That's really odd, right? And the priest shall examine the new flesh and pronounce him unclean. And so it is really fascinating how this all works out. And there's another aspect when they come into the question of even houses and clothing can take on this. In Leviticus 14, when a priest is coming to look at a house to declare if it has thought, they get everybody out of the house and all the utensils and everything that could become contaminated out of the house before the priest arrives. Because when the priest arrives and says, this house is afflicted, then everything in the house is now contaminated as well. But if they got it out before he declared it, it's not contaminated. Hmm. You would think that it was contaminated because it was in the house. But the delineating point is when the priest declares it. So it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. And so there's, there's various reasons and other connections as to why the sages say this. But they see this as it being a a spiritual sin that brought forth a physical problem in the body of this person for which they were to be excommunicated. And they were excommunicated for the purpose of bringing them to repentance from the sin they had committed so that they could be restored back into right and proper relationship within the community. And the primary cause is seen to be slander, or gossip. And that primarily comes from what happened with Miriam and Aaron when they were in the wilderness in Numbers 12 when they spoke ill of Moses and Miriam was struck with leprosy. And actually, I'll go ahead and go there. I hadn't planned on, on looking at that, but I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly here in Numbers 12. When this happens, when this happens, um, this is Numbers 12, verse 10. The cloud departed from atop the tent after God had spoken. This is after God had spoken with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And Miriam was afflicted with tzara'at, like snow. Aaron turned to Miriam, and behold, she was afflicted with tzara'at. And Aaron said to Moses, I beg you, my Lord, do not cast a sin upon us, for we have been foolish, and we have sinned. Let her not be like a corpse like one who leaves his mother's womb with half his flesh having been consumed. So he's saying that she's as though dead because she's in this case of leprosy. She's almost, it's almost as though she's a stillborn child. Right? And so Moses prays for her and God heals her of the affliction. But this was the result of the words that both Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. So the sages connect this with the sin of gossip and slander. They also connect it to other sins such as bloodshed, sexual immorality, pride, robbery, selfishness, all antisocial type activities that would bring destruction to a community were it allowed to continue and persist. And so there's the removal of the person so that they can repent of those things. And then once they've repented, God heals them and provides a path for them to come back into relationship with the community. So with the process, a person becomes contaminated. The next thing that is ultimately desired is removal of the contamination, such that they can then go through a process of restoration, which God prescribes here, and then ultimately they can rejoin the community. And if we take it and look at it from the you know, if we say, what are the parallels to this contamination, removal, purification, and then restoration? It would be sin, followed by repentance, when one becomes aware of what they've done, followed by the cleansing that they go through with bringing the offerings and how God had prescribed restoration. And then ultimately, there's a form of rebirth for that person who has gone from a person as though they were dead to now a person who is restored and back to being a part of the community. Now, Yeshua healed lepers in his days. 
and it was an expectation of the Messiah that, that the Messiah would heal lepers. We have a couple of examples. One is in Luke 17, 11 through 14. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Yeshua, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. All right, so just his words speaking to them brought restoration to them. And then they were going to the priests to show themselves to the priests. So, you know, what would happen when they go to the priest to show themselves? Yeshua gave a little further detail in in an instance in Matthew 8. When he was coming down from the mountain of Beatitudes and he, great crowds were following him. And behold, the leper came to him and knelt before him and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Yeshua stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Yeshua said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so here he says, Go show yourself to the priest, and you're going to offer what Moses prescribed, which was implicit in his Luke 17 statement. So what offering was to be provided to the priests is what we're going to take a look at next, which is in Leviticus 14. And I don't think we're going to read all of this, but I'm going to pull out sections. We'll start in verse 1, though. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp, and the priest shall look. And if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds, and cedar wood, and a scarlet string, and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest will also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Okay. So this is the beginning portion of the purification process. The purification process has really three components. There's this first one where the, where the priest is doing this offering with the two birds, the hyssop, the crimson, and the cedar wood. Okay, and when we hear the hyssop, the crimson, and the cedar wood, bells ought to be going off in our mind thinking back to the Passover. Right? And not only the Passover, but also the red heifer, because those three components show up in all of those items. And then it also can lead us to think of Yeshua on his cross with the wood, the blood, and the hyssop that was used to lift up a sponge of vinegar to him. All right, so this begins the process of restoration of the Mitzorah. And then once this first phase takes place, the Metzorah is then allowed to come back into the camp. Here in, in verse 8 it says, Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. So he's in the camp, but he's not in his home. He's sitting at the tent of his home for seven days. And on the seventh day he shaves his hair off, and he goes through an immersion. Okay. But then on the, so that's, that's phase two is the seven days. Phase three is the eighth day. Here in verse 10, now on the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three-tenths of an aphah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. And then, I'm going to skip forward here. He goes ahead and he makes this guilt offering. The first offering he makes is a guilt offering which is an asham, if you recall back from Leviticus 5. There was, uh, you know, as we start out Leviticus, we looked and we saw the five different types of offering. You had the olah, the burnt offering. You had the mincha, the grain offering. You had the shlamim, which were peace offerings. 
Then you had the chatat, which is the sin offering, and the asham, which is the guilt offering. Those are the five key types. Now this one is an asham that he uh, offers, the guilt offering. And he slaughters it. And then he takes, and here in verse 14, the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one being cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall also take some of the log of oil and pour it into his left palm. And he takes this and he puts it also on the lobe of his ear, his thumb, and his big toe. And then after that, then the priest offers the sin offering and then finally the burnt offering. And now the purification of the Metzorah is complete and he may go back into his tent. He's now fully restored. Now, we're going to come back to this, but with that last part that we were reading, when he takes this offering, he takes the blood and puts it on his earlobe, on his thumb, on his toe. And when they had to sit outside their tent for seven days, now we're seeing pictures of how the priesthood was anointed before they were ready to go serve in the temple. So we've got connections back to Passover. We've got connections back to the priests being made ready to be able to enter into the tabernacle in order to perform the priestly service unto God. All this tied into the restoration of a Mitzorah, one who had been as though dead and now being restored back to life, being taken from a place of not being able to be in the community to being fully restored back to community fellowship. Now, when I mention the connection to Passover, this connection to Passover was seen by, by the sages. I know that Ramban spoke of it specifically. And the connection comes to some of the parallels, like we mentioned, of the cedar with the blood on it and also the blood on the doorposts and the lintel at the time of the Passover, the hyssop being used in both cases. Um, the Metzorah stays outside of his tent for seven days. And during Passover, there's something that has to be kept outside of your tent for seven days, which was the chametz, the sin, right? Chametz is a picture of sin, of puffed up haughtiness. Interesting, that has to be kept outside of the tent and for the full seven days. There's another thing too. Within this process, there were two birds that were taken, okay? One died, and the other was set free. The one that died, was its blood was put into that spring water, so blood mixed with water, so the water became blood. Now back in Egypt, at the time of the Passover, there was the death of the firstborn. But there were two types of firstborn. There, were two, there was one type of firstborn that lived, and there was one type of firstborn that died. Interesting, right? Because, so the two birds are a picture of the two firstborns that died as part of the Passover process, or of the one firstborn who died and the one who lived. Okay. And there's, there's some deeper connection there with the water turning to, <clears throat> with the spring water and the blood going into it. I'm not going to go into that completely. But additionally, even beyond just these parallels that we see, is there's a connection to the word that is used to describe the affliction of leprosy. In Leviticus 13.2, the scripture says, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of nega, which is translated leprous disease, on the skin of his body, then he should be brought. Okay, so that... That case of nega, the affliction on his body, is the sign of the leprosy. Well, that same word was used in Exodus 11, verse 1, when God was describing what he was going to do with the death of the firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more nega I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Okay. Now, those are the two times that this same spelling and conjugation of that word is used in the Torah. 
So there's this connection being made between the affliction here and the exodus from Egypt. Now, interestingly, this word nega or affliction, it's used in those two passages, Leviticus 13.2, Exodus 11.1, 1, and then it's also used to describe the suffering servant in Isaiah 53.4. And we'll, we'll probably talk about the leper Messiah in a little bit, if we have time. But with the suffering servant, okay, We read in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, or nagua is how it's translated here, or uh, written here in the scriptures. We esteemed him stricken, nagua, smitten by God and afflicted. And then going on, continuing in Isaiah 53, 10, speaking of the death of the Messiah, it says, It was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, an asham. When, so when the Messiah makes a guilt offering, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So there's connections here in Isaiah 53 that are tying to the work of Messiah who brings forth the purification of the Metzorah. Okay? Through a guilt offering Okay, but interestingly, when it, okay, so we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about the leper Messiah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so the, okay, let me, uh, let me see here. I have a couple of notes I'm going to pull from. Or maybe I don't. Huh. All right, so I don't think I have them. Um, that's okay. So the idea of, the, you know how there are many names of Messiah? Well, one that the sages say is the name of the Messiah is Messiah the leper, which is a little bit confusing, right? Because the Messiah is a savior of the people. But yet, how can, one, how can the Messiah who is righteous be a leper? And there's, there's various discussions on this, but... The idea is that, you know, there's a Messiah ben Joseph, a Messiah ben David. The Messiah ben Joseph suffers on behalf of the people. And the Messiah ben Joseph would be likened unto the leper Messiah who suffers for the sins of the nation such that he might be a reconciliation for them. Because the suffering of the righteous atones for the sins of the nation. And so... Here in Isaiah 53, when we speak about the suffering servant, we know that he bore our iniquities so that we might have restoration, that we might be forgiven, that we might be healed, that we might be restored. And here he's stricken, Nagua, as though a leper and smitten by God. But then he makes, his soul makes an offering, a guilt offering, to bring reconciliation and you know how we've spoken over the weeks that we can find Yeshua in every type of sacrifice, right? We can see him in the elevation offering. We can see him in the peace offering. We can see him in the sin offering because he who knew no sin became a sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And even here, he acts as an offering for guilt, for restoration of those who are dead even though they live. Okay? Now, when we, when we say it's an offering for those who are dead, even though they live, that's the case of the person with, with Sarah'at. They're as though they're the walking dead. They're alive, but they are totally cut off from their people and from connection to God. They are outside the camp. They are in affliction and contaminated. And their only hope is the life that God brings as a result of repentance and the purification that God brings. And so, so now, so the suffering servant brings redemption and new life to those who were without life. And there's a few passages here that I want to read from. Um, Ephesians 2. I don't think I have it, I don't think I have it in the, uh, 
in the slides, so I'm just going to go to it. Okay. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Okay, but then skipping down to verse 4, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Messiah and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah, Yeshua. Beautiful picture, right, of the dead who need life, right? Dead, even though we lived and walked and breathed, we were lacking the life, the everlasting life that could be imparted to us through the one who would willingly give himself as the guilt offering to restore life to the dead. It's, it's the whole picture of this God who causes death and brings life and makes salvation grow. Right? And, and within this, there has to be a rebirth. Right? If we're going to go from death to life, we have to be reborn. And, and I think this is what Yeshua was talking about when he met with Nicodemus in John 3. In John 3, verse 3, Yeshua was speaking with Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Yeshua answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so, so he's talking about this new life. Because Nicodemus, right, he's, he was a faithful Jew. He was a faithful Jew born of the seed of Abraham. And normally an immersion to actually be seen as a rebirth would be when someone who is not a Jew is becoming legally Jewish. Okay, it's actually... Uh, yeah, it's actually going through conversion to become Jewish. You would have an immersion, and when you come up out of the water, you're said to be a new creation. So here's Nicodemus saying, how can I be born again? I'm already a Jew. It doesn't make sense to be born again because I don't need to convert. And Yeshua says, you need to enter into a new life that only God can give. This is a, this is a being reborn from above, which is another translation of that John 3 passage, uh, when it says born again, born from above. He says, yes, you were born of earthly descent. And Abraham, and you know, Yeshua knows that Abraham would have multiple offspring, his physical offspring and his spiritual offspring. But the real way into the kingdom is being born again from above. And so he's saying, you must be born of spirit and water. And in Acts, Chapter 2, when Peter is giving his, uh, he's giving his message to the people on the day of Pentecost, after he had told them about what, who Yeshua was and the salvation and life that he brings, in Acts 2.37, the scripture says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, Lord our God calls to himself. Right? So here's the door. to Come and be immersed in the water and be born of the Spirit. The water and the Spirit is what his answer is to the people. And Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Messiah Yeshua? We're baptized into his death. Okay, so now we're, right? How is it that we come into this new life? How do we become baptized by water and spirit? It's through the death and the provision that Yeshua brought through his death and resurrection. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Messiah Yeshua were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as the Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Messiah, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay, so when Paul is talking to people, he's not saying you died a physical, literal death at this point and have been and are now living with him. Instead, he's saying that there was a spiritual death that you went through. Okay, where, whereby the sin nature that you walked in has been put to death and now you've been made a new creation to walk in fullness of life with God. But what that means, so if you are dead to sin, you're no longer enslaved to sin, but now free to live in righteousness unto God. But to die to sin, you had to die to what your flesh wanted to do. You had to experience a death in order to then begin to walk in life. And the way that you put, the way that you get rid of that man of sin, that flesh sin, is through repentance from sin and agreement with God of what righteousness is and accepting God's favor and gift unto you. And that's really what the Mitzorah found himself in. Right? Everyone... Everyone has sinned and is without hope, without God, without what he brings as our resurrection, right? The Mitzorah was outside the camp without hope, had sin to deal with, and had to die to that sin, had to repent of it, so that then he could come to the priest and go through the purification that God ordained so that he might then be fully restored into a new life that he couldn't be in without God's provision. It's the same. It's, it's just like the picture that we have with Yeshua. There is a life that God wants us to walk in with him that we are not fit for without the work of Yeshua, without being reborn from above of water and spirit through the blood of the Lamb. And he makes us so that we can enter into that. We weren't fit for it before, but now we are fit for it because of what God has done. And that's a real, um, that's an important aspect to think of what's taking place with the Mitzorah. Even, you know, how I mentioned there's elements of this that go in line with what happens with the inauguration for the priests, which we just read in Leviticus 8. I think it was last week, perhaps. I don't, I don't think we talked too much about it last week. But in Leviticus 8, during the inauguration of the priests, right, the, the, the tabernacle has been set up, and, but there needs to be a priesthood who's going to serve in the tabernacle. And here in Leviticus 8, 22, this is speaking of what takes place. I'm not going to read all of this, actually. But within this passage... Part of the process for the priests is that Moses took some of the blood, put it on the lobe of the right ear, the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot. Right? Just like what's happening with the Mitzorah. And then uh, we continue on, and he completes all the offering and the setting apart for the priests. And for the sake of time, we're skipping forward. After he's done all of this, after he's done all this, in verse 33 says, you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days. So he tells the priest, now I've, I've done these offerings on your behalf. I've placed the blood upon you. I'm inaugurating you for this new role. Now you need to sit at the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are complete. For it will take seven days to ordain you, as has been done today, 
the Lord commanded to be done to make atonement for you. So they stayed there for seven days. Well then, actually this was a couple weeks ago. Then when we began Shemini, which was last week's portion, that's when it says on the eighth day, they were ready. Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and they began to move into their priestly service in the tabernacle. So the priests had a consecration that was very similar to the Mitzorah. Now the priests could not serve in the tabernacle until after they had been inaugurated. And on the eighth day, now they were ready to do this. Well, the eighth day is a picture of the world to come. The seven, seven days being a picture of this world, the eighth day being the new beginnings of the world to come. The priests could not enter into this eighth day without the offerings and being inaugurated and set apart. They weren't fit to serve in the temple. Okay? Same thing with the Metzorah. They weren't fit to go back into their dwelling to be fully restored until that eighth day when they brought the, the final offerings. Now, we've talked about the tabernacle and how it was a picture of the Garden of Eden where God had had his presence on the earth and had Adam and Eve there in the temple serving, but sin caused them to be moved out of it and for God to take away the garden. Once Adam and Eve sinned, they were no longer fit to be in God's garden. So they had to be removed until a time when mankind would be made fit to enter back into the garden. Right? And so God began the process of restoring the, the garden to the earth through bringing the tabernacle and setting apart a priesthood who could serve in that domain. And God's ultimate desire is to have his tabernacle on earth again and to dwell with man. But for man to enter into that tabernacle, to enter into that everlasting life with him, man has to be made fit, made ready to be able to go into that. And the only way that man is made able to go into that is through the rebirth by the work of Yeshua. Right? So he's taken us from death into life and caused salvation to grow. It's a really neat picture of how the restoration takes place and how God weaves this whole story throughout his scripture. Even you go back to Passover, right? We, we started out talking a little, bit about, a little bit about the connections with this redemption of the Metzorah and Passover. Even with Passover, it was the birth of a nation. They were moving from being dead under the rule of Pharaoh to now being made alive as a new nation who is going to come into a relationship with God. It's all about rebirth. So when we're talking about all about this rebirth, isn't it interesting that our portion, our double portion opened up speaking about birth? I know we didn't mention that starting out, but now if we were to look back to Leviticus 12 when our portion opens up, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When a woman conceives and gives birth to a male... Okay, so... <laughs> it's pretty cool, right? We're starting out talking about this birth. And the sages actually make note of this male child being born in this passage is not just in general. It's speaking about a specific male child being born, and that male chi child is the Messiah, who then, in the following chapter, is the one who becomes a leper. And then in the following chapters is the one who becomes restored and validated by the priest to be the one who is restored and now made back to being a part of the community. So if we look at this whole picture and try to say, okay, if we step back and look at the work of Yeshua, we know that he was perfectly righteous. He was... He was the man born of the nation of Israel who took on sin and was smitten, was struck and cut off on our behalf so that we could be restored. And he offered himself up as a guilt offering. And now he's waiting 
to return. And as he waits, he's outside the camp. He's pure, but he hasn't been presented to the priest yet. He's completely pure, outside the camp, waiting to be brought back in. So who's going to bring him back in? Who's going to bring him to the outskirts of the camp and bring the priest to come look at him and say, he is pure? Right? That's part of the calling that we have, is to bring revelation of the Messiah to man, to both the Gentile and to the Jew, so that he can be presented before the, before the priest, where the priest says he is pure, and restores him back into fellowship with his community, where he'd be rightfully crowned as king over all Israel. It's the whole picture of this restoration taking place once again. Oh, hey, I found my notes on the leper Messiah. <laughs> I thought they were in there. Um, and, okay, so this is, this is one thing I was wanting to mention of it. This is in the Talmud, in the Gemara. The sages ask, what is his name? And the rabbis say, the leper of the house of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is his name, as it stated, Indeed, our illnesses he did bear, and our pains he endured, yet we did esteem him injured, stricken by God, and afflicted. Nagua, right. So that's in the Talmud, the expectation that the Messiah is Messiah the leper, the one who is afflicted on our behalf. Right? Um, so it's really, it's really a neat picture. But ultimately, God brings us to a place where he's brought us out of death into life and caused salvation to flourish within us so that we can be part of this restoration process, so that we can be the ones who bring witness of the Messiah and present him to the world so the world might come into the great salvation that we've been given so that even as, uh, as Paul talked about, you know, if, if the rejection of Yeshua by the Jews was life to the nations, how much more will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Right? It's life from the dead. Yes, Jen. Yes, it, it has to be the priesthood that recognizes Yeshua as the rightful king and anoints him as king over Israel. It's not, gonna, it's not just that some people or some rabbis or recognize him. That is all important because that's part of the process of then being able to rightly represent him and give testimony of him so that the priesthood will recognize him and will anoint him. But it has to be the priesthood that's going to say he is pure and crown him as king. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's critical that, <clears throat> that we represent him well. And how do we do that except by knowing who he is in his rightful context, and then actually being disciples who live according to his teachings and his ways. Because if we don't live according to his teachings and his ways, then we actually profane his name. Right? And profaning his name is not rightly representing him to the nations or to the Jewish people. So we have to, we actually have to live as those who, who were dead with Yeshua and then brought to life with him such that the body of sin is put to death and righteousness reigns in us. Right? That's part of our great calling. It's part of our great calling and part of, what, part of what it looks like when God causes salvation to flourish. Because even if you think back to the divine might that we were reading about, it's with great compassion He revives the dead. It's great compassion. Um, You know, um, I'm not sure if this compassion is racham, but there's a word racham, which is compassion, and it's also a word for the womb. You know, in the womb is a place where a mother nurtures and cares for her child until it's ready to be born. And the mother has compassion on her child. We are the children of God, who has great compassion on us and brings us to life and rebirth.
and he supports the fallen, heals the sick, sets the captives free, and he keeps his faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, master of might? And to whom can you be compared, O king who brings death and gives life and makes salvation grow? Amen. Does anybody have anything that you want to share? So, you know, you made the link of the blood on the earlobe, Uh the thumb, right? And for them to enter the camp, right? But yet these are not priests, right? These are just regular Jews. Right. Or Israel, Israelites. Um, But then if you go to Exodus 19, verse 6, and here he is talking to all Israel. Uh, I'll go to the verse before five. Now, if you will pay careful attention to what I say and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests for me, a nation set apart. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel, right? So even though they're not Levitical priests, they are a kingdom of priests. And so therefore you have the blood on the earlobe, the thumb to enter back into um, the camp. Yes. Right. And then you're also talking about what the master does for us and how he has cleansed us in, in the similar way and you've made the connection. Well, then Peter also calls uh-huh. us a kingdom of priests, right? Yes. Absolutely. It's beautiful because, yeah, there's, there's more than one type of priest. And that's right. We are a kingdom of priests. And how do we become that kingdom of priests except by God making us fit to be able to do it? Okay. Father, we bless you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who gives life to the dead, who gives hope to those who sit in darkness. Thank you, Lord, for the light that you've given us, for the life you've given us. And thank you, Lord, that you have made us to be a kingdom and priests unto you. Lord, may you work in us and through us. May we live in righteousness unto you and bring glory to your name. We pray that you continue to give us revelation of who you are and your great plan of salvation. We give you glory in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.